for thousands of years. God has kept a secret in his heart, hidden from the world, from the angels, from the priests, from the patriarchs, and from the prophets. Until the time came for God to reveal it through his son to the apostles. The secret was this. There was to be a new creation, a new living temple, a new spiritual body through which God was going to work to carry out the message of salvation to the ends of the earth and in whom God himself was going to create his spiritual likeness. This new creation was to be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And what is the name of this new creation? It is called the church. The church was not foreseen by anything written in the Old Testament. It was a surprise. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul calls it a mystery, something previously unknown, which has now been revealed. Paul introduces this mystery and explains it in very general terms in the first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 3. After introducing this great mystery, Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. He prays that they might be empowered to mature spiritually and to experience the fullness of God. Now, Paul recognizes the importance of prayer as a spiritual enablement for the church. In Grace Baptist Church, our preparation to uproot ourselves, to leave this place, in order that this existing building will undergo a complete rebuilding. The congregational leaders, pastors and elders are cognizant that prayer is vital. Prayer is an ongoing spiritual preparation, not a reaction, but a purposeful intention action on the part of the leaders and part of everyone. So for those who have joined us in recent times, or those who will be listening to our audio podcast at our website, we are in the midst of a sermon series on prayer. This morning, we resume our study on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let us learn from Paul's description of prayer, and not only that, apply it to our lives, individually and corporately, within this community of faith. Now, when it comes to prayer, what comes to your mind? Is prayer a formula? Say the right words, and the prayers will be answered. It's a formula. Is prayer a fad, a trend? Comes and goes like the seasons. Good times, praise God. Bad times, pray more. Really bad times, fast, and then you pray. A formula says the right phrases, the right words. A fad tells you to adapt to the times. Prayers will be answered. Or is prayer a facade, a veneer? On the surface, the trappings of a church. Trappings. We do it because everyone does it. We fit into the crowd. This is a church. It's a facade. What comes to your mind when you think of prayer? This is our quest this morning. A sermon on prayer rightly begins with prayer. Let us bow our heads together. Dear God, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, we are so ministered by our worship in song this morning. 
We ask God that the worship that we sing to you, the songs, really comes from our hearts. We ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit continue to lead us, even as we recognize you have given your word, the Holy Bible, to teach us how to live as your people on this earth. And this morning, Father, we look at the topic of prayer, a quest, a quest that we know we ought to pursue and to practice. Yet, it is a quest that eludes many, if not all of us. So we ask, Father, this morning that we may learn and be encouraged by today's scripture passage to appreciate as well as to appropriate prayer as individuals and as a community of faith. May your word transform our lives this morning, mold us, shape us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and give thanks. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Prayer begins with approaching God. We approach God. That is the starting point for prayer. Verse 14. Paul resumes his original prayer, which he stated in verse 1, for this reason, the mystery, how God has brought the Jews and Gentiles together. Now, Paul says, I bow my knees. The kneeling posture represents humility and reverent worship. In contrast to the common practice of standing to pray, the Jews and the Christians stand to pray. Paul, in this instance, he bowed his knees before the Lord to show us the humility in his heart. It is God we are approaching. It is God we are worshipping this morning. We come before God, before the throne of grace, to worship Him and Him alone. Who is God to you and I? Who is more important, God or you and I? Your view of God will shape and will determine your approach to God. A creature approaching our Creator approaching God in humility, you ought to shudder. Why? If you are living in the Old Testament times, you have no chance at all to be given the opportunity and the privilege to approach God. Because approaching God is serious business. Aaron, the brother of Moses, the band that God appointed, the priest in the Levite. Aaron's two sons decided that they can approach God according to their own way. What happened to them? Both Nadab and Abihu were killed. Leviticus chapter 10. They were killed. The object lesson is you don't mess with God. You don't mess with God. Now, not only was God's holiness something you don't mess around with, even the things that belong to God, the things that belong to God, you don't mess with them. Uzzah did. 2 Samuel 6. And he did not leave to tell the others. You don't mess around with God. All His things. Approach God with awe and reverence. God is not your equal. God is the creator of all things, living or non-living. None of us, none of us should adopt a laissez-faire attitude in approaching God. Approaching God with humility. Now the question at the back of our minds is, are you sure we can approach God? Neither by who they were killed. Uzzah were killed. How can you approach God? The answer is very simple. Christ has made it possible for us. When we ask our congregation to do the imperative, we remind them of the indicative that Christ has done all the work for all of us. Think with me along this line. Hebrews tells us that Christ is the one who has actually opened the door. He has opened the door for us, the pathway for us to approach God. But 
Christ did not just open the door. Christ is sitting on the right hand of God. What did He do? Interceding for us. In other words, Christ is not just opening the door for us. He's actually acting like a doorstop. He's standing with His hand on a door. The pathway to God is available to all of us. Approach God. Approach God with humility. Now, prayer is directed to God the Father. God is the Father of all fathers for every family in heaven and on earth derives its existence and its family name from the Father. We get our family name from our, our Father, not from our mom, because God is the Father of all fathers. Now, more, more importantly than that, such a powerful heavenly Father, our Father, can hear and He can answer the prayer that we utter to Him. Approach God in humility. Verses 16 to 19 talks about approaching the appeal to God after we approach God. Prayer begins with approaching God. God is the focus of our prayer, not ourselves, not the things that we are facing. God is the focus. Approach God as your Heavenly Father. Now, approach leads to appeal. The prayer of Paul has four requests, four appeals which build on each other, which flow out of each other. Verse 16. The first request is for inner strength. Inner strength. Now, this is not the when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. The kind of strength. This is not self-discipline or the power of positive thinking. This is not mental renewing or self-talk. Or some like to use the phrase, get a grip of yourself. It is not even turning over a new leaf. This is the fundamental work of God. Fundamental word of God through His Spirit. The inner being, the phrase, the inner being is the innermost part of thoughts and feelings where God works to draw in us to Himself. Our inner being, God works to draw us to Himself and from which spring all our actions and all our attitudes. Paul prays that the church may be strengthened in the inner being. Strengthened from within through the Holy Spirit. Why the inner being? Now, in his book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Dr. Paul Brand tells the story of white corpuscles. Right, let's just jot our memories about the uh, biology. White corpuscles, the guardians and watchdogs of our human body. The armed forces of your inner workings, which are always on guard against foreign invasion. The white corpuscles look exactly like amoeba. Amorphous blobs of turgid liquid with darkened nuclei. So there's a, some sort of amoeba with a darkened nuclei. They swim through the bloodstream extending a finger-like projection and humping along, okay, humping along the, the bloodstream. And sometimes they creep along the walls of the veins. Sometimes they let go and then they free float. Free float in the bloodstream. They just go with the flow according to your powers. Now to navigate the smaller capillaries, bulky, obese white cells must elongate. They must elongate their shape. Okay, they must elongate their shape while impatient red blood cells jostle in line behind them. Can you imagine? Red blood cells, white blood cells, white blood cells have the first goal. The red blood cells will jostle. They will jostle each other in line behind the white cells. Now, watching the white cells, you can't help thinking how sluggish, how ineffective. To patrol the corridors of my bloodstream, much less to repel an attack. Ah, but until an attack occurs. When an attack occurs, an alarm seems to go off. As if they had a sense of smell. We still do not know how 
the white cells are able to sense danger, okay? When an attack occurs, nearby white cells abruptly stop their aimless wandering. Like sniffer dogs in the, on the scent of a fugitive, these white cells home in in all directions to the location where the invasion took place. I mentioned about their unique shape-shifting qualities and abilities, right? They ooze between over, overlapping cells of capillary walls. They just ooze between them. And they hurry through the tissues via the most direct and the quickest route. When they arrive at the location, battle begins. The shapeless white cell, resembling some science fiction alien life form, it lumber toward, toward a cluster of luminous green bacterial spheres, like a blanket that wrapped tightly over an object. The white cell assumes the shape of the bacteria. Here's a bacteria, the white cells come, it just assumes the shape of the bacteria. For a while, the bacteria still glows eerily inside the white cell under a microscope. But the white cell contains granules of chemical explosives. And as soon as the bacteria are absorbed by the white cell, the granules detonate, destroying the bacteria in 30 to 60 seconds. After that, only the white cells remain. When the body is attacked, its inner forces resist the body's and the body's normal functioning is reinforced in a manner that protects it from danger. It is strengthened from within. We don't put a band-aid or plaster over our hands. It is internal working that you strengthen us. Now, this gives a very accurate analogy to our Christian life. The believer in Christ is attacked continually from the forces of the world in which we live and from the forces of evil that will destroy us as well as our inner magnetism all of us has this inner magnetism that draws us, draws us to sin. And when we are under attack, we must resist. We must be reinforced in our counter-attack. We must be strengthened from within. Now, the biblical way of dealing with life's problem is to deal with our own spiritual state. What is your spiritual state? The Christian method is to build up our resistance in our inner being by ourselves. No, as I mentioned that, by the Spirit. That is why Paul prays that out of God's glorious riches, God may strengthen you and I with power through His Spirit in our inner being. Whatever the attack may be, the resistance can be so strengthened that we will be made more than conquerors. This is the essential biblical teaching as to how to live in the world, how to keep coping and thriving, how to be more than conquerors in spite of everything that happens to you and I. The Bible challenges us not to figure out a way, don't figure out a way to eliminate your problems, but rather to be strengthened, strengthened by God in such a way as to live above them, above our problems, not with not pain and suffering, they will still be there, but in spite of pain and suffering. Paul prays for four things. The first appeal, the request to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner self, your inner being, that leads us to the second request. Deep faith. This is not salvation, verse 17. Paul was writing to Christians, the Ephesus, the believers in Ephesus. And Christ takes up our rest, takes up residence in you and I, in our hearts, when we accept him. John chapter 14, verse 25. So this is more than resident faith that comes with salvation. That Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is the idea that Christ is being at home in your heart. There's a little book called My Heart, Christ's Home. 
It pictures the Christian life as a house through which Jesus goes from room to room. In the library, which is in our mind, the library depicts our mind. Jesus finds trash and all sorts of worthless things which he proceeds to throw out and replace with his word, the living word. And next, the dining room, the appetite, where Jesus finds many sinful desires listed on a worldly menu in the place of such things as prestige, materialism, and lust, Jesus puts humility, meekness, love, and all other virtues for which we are to hunger and thirst for. The library, dining room, and now the living room, where Jesus finds many worldly companions and activities. Next, the workshop, where toys and hobbies are a reflection of what occupy our lives. Finally, the closets, where hidden sins are kept. Christ went through the entire house, spring cleaning the entire house. Only when Jesus has cleaned every room, every closet, every corner of sin and foolishness, then can Christ really settle down and be at home in our hearts. And to have Christ dwell in your hearts through faith means for Jesus to be at home in every corner of your life because you believe His promises and therefore becomes obedient to His word. So literally, verse 17 describes your desire that Christ may be at home. At home in. That is the very center of your life. You let Christ become the dominating factor in your attitudes and your actions. There is a third request and it's found in verses 18 and part, first part of verse 19. The first request is for the strengthening of the inner being by the Holy Spirit, which leads to the second request to let Jesus be at home. Not at your doorstep, but at home in every room and every closet. Letting Christ to be at home in all the rooms of your heart leads us to the third request, which is to enable you to know the vast dimensions, breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. This love of Christ is described as surpassing human knowledge. We sang a few hymns just now, a few choruses. We can't help but touch, but touch by the fathomless of Christ, isn't it? Fathomless love of Christ. This love of Christ is described as surpassing human knowledge. Love. Now we need foundations for our experiences and relationship. We can't handle life unless we are assured that God loves us. And our security is in God and God alone. That God has accepted us. That we are precious to Him. When we know this, then we know who we are then we have a sense of well-being. Only love gives us that, the love of Christ. Now, this sense of identity and being loved gives us the ability not only to respond to God, but to relate to others so that we can, be, so that we can comprehend with all the saints the magnitude of God's love. So therefore, knowing God's love is not just an individual accomplishment. We pray for ourselves, okay, me and my God, you and your God, no, it occurs in the loving context of the church and involves the whole church, not isolated individuals. Love must become the dominant quality of life, the roots of our existence, the foundation from which all else rests upon. And this love cannot be manufactured by any one of us. It comes from God, from Christ. Such love in, your, in our lives comes from divine love. And therefore, Paul's request is that the church and each of his members, all of us, Look at the phrase in red. All of us know 
Christ in a personal, intimate way, as well as an intellectual and relational, rational love of Christ in the community of faith. We measure this love with cosmic dimension, the physical dimension. The love of Christ surpasses our human understanding. How do you fathom the love of Jesus for sinners such as I? We need to pause and really take a good look at ourselves right now. Does anyone here dare to think for a moment that Jesus owes a debt to you? That Jesus is obliged obliged to love us, let alone to die for us. The Bible tells us very clearly the fatherless fatherless love of Christ that defies human understanding. No one, not even the angels, can ever, ever fathom the love of Jesus Christ for you and I. Paul has a fourth and final request, a prayer for God's fullness. Now, the inner strength of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift which God gives to those who pray, leads to the indwelling of Christ in every room in your heart, which then leads to abundant love. Because when Christ occupies every room in your heart, you are filled with the love of Christ, which leads us to the fullness of God. Now, what is God's fullness? It means to be satisfied with God, to be filled up to the fullness of God. And the only way it will happen is is we pursue after God diligently. If we pray for God to strengthen us with the power of the Holy Spirit in our inner man, Christ will be at home in the room of your heart. Christ occupies your heart. You will have confidence and security in His love. You are able to love the unlovable. If we have such confidence and security, we love others unconditionally. This ability to know God's love leads to the fullness of God in us. God's presence, God's power, God's love and God's life inhabit all of us. Now, the fullness of God, among other things, involves two things. All right? Among many, but two things I want to bring up, uh, straightforward, and that is firstly, what grieves God ought to grieve you. What grieves God ought to grieve you and I. What offends God ought to offense you and I. To have the fullness of God means to experience the moral excellence and perfection of God, which causes the Jews and the Gentiles, believers, to come together as one church. It's the power of God to bring them together. The mystery, the new creation. God desires to reconcile men and women to Himself. Last Monday, 17 August, was a busy day. At one of the most crowded intersections in Patuan District, downtown Bangkok. As the ties bust in the cool of the evening, a bomb went off five minutes before 7 p.m. 20 people lost their lives. Another 125 were maimed and injured. Some of them still fighting for their lives in the hospital. Among those who lost their lives that day, one group of people will be ushered into the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. The other group will be sentenced to a Christless eternity. One group in the presence of Jesus Christ for eternity. The other one, Christless eternity. Now the church, the church is the manifestation of God on earth. It, if the fullness of God is seen in us, our hearts will be aligned with God's heart. That is the test of the fullness of God in our lives. We will rejoice for those who are saved. Conversely, we will grieve for those who are lost. 
So our church, Grace Baptist Church, may we be counted as one that is faithfully experiencing and encountering God, not of yesteryears, but today and tomorrow and many more future days to come and years to come. Grace Baptist Church, faithfully experiencing and encountering God, not only that, responding to His leading to participate fully in His kingdom on this earth. And that is Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesus. This is the prayer on the lips of the leaders in Grace Baptist Church. As the pastors and elders gather every Wednesday, 7 a.m. in the church, we pray that the flock that God places under our pastoral shepherding will be more and more like Christ in their context that they are facing, whether it's physical challenges, spiritual challenges, mental challenges. The leaders pray that the flock will be more and more like Jesus, will be matured in Christ. We thought about the approach, we thought about appeal. Now we talk about ascription, ascribing to God. Prayer begins with how you approach God. You approach God with utmost humility. Then you bring your appeal to God. The appeal that brings up and builds up the community of faith, not for yourself. Yes, exams are important, work is important, definitely. But within the community of faith, how our exam, how our work can really bring up Christ in our interaction. The question here is that how do we end our prayer? When we approach God, we bring our appeal to Him. How do we end our prayer? We ascribe to Him what is due to Him. Verses 20 and 21, Paul ends his prayer for power, for strengthening, for the fullness of God with an exclamation of praise to God. Paul's prayer forms a great doxology for the Lord, for God's power and glory. Now we see three things first. We see the sovereignty of God, Him who is able. God may choose to do whatever He wills. He is able. What He can do far exceeds anything we can dream or imagine, much less ask for. The sovereignty of God. He is in control of everything. Now, God's sovereignty means our prayers can be answered far beyond even what we ask, even though sometimes we may ask out of point, even though we may ask something that really doesn't fulfill God's desire for us and His will. God's sovereignty means that our prayers will be answered far beyond even what we ask. According to the power, we see the omnipotence of God. God manifests His great power in many ways. Most obviously, He manifested it when He created the world with His voice, with His verbal command. God used that kind of power to bring the Jews and Gentiles, their sworn enemies, to bring the Jews and Gentiles together and form them into a dwelling of God and the Spirit. So the power we see in creation and in the church is the power of God that works in us in the, in the relationship of love and prayer. We ascribe to God the sovereignty and the omnipotence. And finally, verse 21, we see His glory. The power of God has manifested and continues to display. The power of God has a purpose. And what is that? Bring glory to Him. All that God has done in eternity, past, present and future is to resound in His glory forever. God has done things in the church among His people and in Christ Jesus where His people now abide. You and I abide in Him and where God completed His plan of salvation. Now, where do you think is the clearest manifestation of God's glory? Where do you think is the clearest manifestation of God's glory? 
In heaven? Sure. For the angels. But there is another place. On earth. The church. Grace Baptist Church. Among many other churches around the world. Now, do you recognize God's thumbprint in His church? More specifically, in Grace Baptist Church. The invisible hand of Almighty God leads His church, albeit through the frail hands of the leaders of the church. We, as leaders of the church, we are but jars of clay. But what is important is that we want to be faithful to God, we want to be obedient to God. So the invisible hand of Almighty God leads His church, leads Grace Baptist Church through the frail hands and legs of the leaders of this church. God chose us to work with the feeble and the weak to dispense divine grace and demonstrate divine strength. God is the one who sustains His church, who causes it to grow, not you and I. God is the one who causes it to grow. But God does this through His people, you and I. That's where we come in. Everyone in the church has a role to play. Everyone has a contribution to make. Would Grace Baptist Church be a manifestation of God's glory and grace in Martha Road and beyond? Especially when we move out of here. Let us see and recognize. Let us be able to see and recognize God's work in the church and in Christ and we respond in praise and worship, giving God the glory. Everyone doing your part for the advancement of the gospel. The church is God's new creation made up of all the new creations in you and I. 2 Corinthians 5.17 God has gathered a group of people to congregate together. That is us. Gathered here this morning. Coming together for what purpose? To worship Him, obviously. At the same time, to advance the gospel. Now this requires all of us to seek after God for spiritual strengthening. We seek God through prayer. Approaching Him in humility, appealing for divine enablement, and ascribing glory to God. is what we do. Whatever you may be facing, go to God. God is a source of strength. With the assurance of a child who is seeking your father, approach God, appeal to Him, ascribe glory to Him. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We recognize, Lord, that as our church embark on the move, we recall, Lord, that uh, spiritual rebuilding is a vital component. We also recognize, Lord, that spiritual rebuilding is not a one-off thing. But way back, almost two years ago, we recognize the importance as raised up by many people in this church. And therefore, we have been embarking on this journey faithfully it is tiring, it is challenging, but we are faithful. And so we pray, Father, that you help us to recognize this even as we move off-site very shortly. Remind all of us, Lord, that on our own strength, we cannot do what you want us to do. Remind us again, Lord, that we can approach you, we can appeal to you the challenges in our context. Same time, Lord, remind us we can ascribe the glory and honor to your name. We pray, Father, that Christ might be completely at home in our hearts that we might know the love of God which surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled up to all your fullness so that we reflect your grace and your glory. And we ask all this in Christ's name.